Hello, and welcome to episode 14, the last in this current series of Frankly Speaking with Lynn Franks and Friends. I'm Lynn Franks, your host, and this week I'm joined by my friend Indra Adnan. She's a writer, psychosocial therapist, and political entrepreneur. She is also the co-founder of the Alternative UK political change platform with her partner, Pat Kane, and is a global consultant on soft power. We are going to be discussing her very important new book, The Politics of Waking Up, Power and Possibility in the Fractal Age. I am so fortunate with the incredible women in my life. When I decided to call this podcast Lynn Franks and Friends, I, I knew I had amazing friends, but as I meet and discuss and go deep with them, I realize just how extraordinary they are. And today I am really blown away um, in the conversation to come, I know, with my friend Indra Adnam. And I know that because I have been spending the last two weeks reading this extraordinary book. Indra, who is a visionary, a psychologist, a co-founder of an organization called The Alternatives UK, which is doing incredible work, uh, and an author, um, and so much more, has written this book that's just come out, The Politics of Waking Up, Power and Possibility in the Fractal Age. It has blown me away. So welcome, Indra. Welcome, welcome. So how long did it take you to write this book? It was a long time, I feel, or your whole life, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, it took me you know, the past three decades at least to be, to be working my way up to a big picture of what I think is possible. But I can't deny that it's COVID that accelerated the process because suddenly there was somehow space in my life to focus on that thing, you know, of writing. And uh, it, it takes something, it, it takes much more than I thought. I, I actually thought to myself that I didn't have a book in me because I'm not as such a methodical person, things emerge and I respond to them. But this book, my publisher offered me the idea that we should write it in 12 blogs. Like, and I was already writing a weekly blog. Yes, you do. Uh, what is it called? The Alternative Daily? Yeah, so it's the Daily Alternative, but I'm writing editorial. And so that's around the size of the chapter. And so I was used to doing that amount. And so, yeah, suddenly, oh, a book that comes out of 15 well, I have to tell you that because I've been reading your book, it made me think about the book that I have put in a drawer called The Pod Effect that I started writing three or four years ago and how it's coming out. It actually has come out of the drawer over the weekend and I am determined now to continue writing it and finish it um, because it's absolutely the right time. Not, it's not written the same way as yours, not written about the same things as yours, but totally going to the same place. And there's a quote you have in the book constantly, which I also quote in any talks or opportunities I have, which is that wonderful, very meaningful uh, sentence or couple of sentences by Buckminster Fuller, who I'm a huge fan of. He was an American visionary. I think he must have probably said this in the 40s or 50s. I haven't looked at the date. He said, you never change things by fighting existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And I quote that at least three times a week to the women I'm working with, to the groups I'm working with, because there is so much fear and anger right now 
isn't there, because of COVID and how people are moving into a new society. But it's not about bringing the government down. I mean, if people want to go on protests, that's fine too, but it's really much, so much more than that. We have to work together in collaboration. And I'm going to go much more into that with the concepts that you're working with now uh, to create a new society. That's it. And it's got to be so attractive and so real that people will naturally gravitate to it instead of us going to war and getting violent and breaking down the doors of Westminster like they did in America. So, um, so much to ask you and where to start. So we met originally, I don't even remember how long ago, and we met as Buddhists. Uh, I'm older than you, but we met as, you were a young Buddhist and I was a slightly older Buddhist. Uh, Nishirin Buddhism was what we followed, and I am still do. We were working together on what was the PR committee for the Sokakakai, for the Nishirin Buddhist. Anyway, your book starts with your experience of having first met Buddhism in Indonesia, which was the country of your father, which you were visiting, and you went to a village where there was family and you were invited to a Buddhist meeting. So do you want to explain how your life really changed completely after this meeting and through this meeting? Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, I was on a, a you know, back to my roots post, you know, uh, uni, um, what would have been called the gap year now, you weren't really describing it that way, going home. And I, I actually found the Buddhist movement um, in an unusual place because for it, maybe people know that Indonesia is 93% Muslim. And I was scouting around as a young journalist, actually, looking for stories. And I heard that there was this bunch of Buddhist anarchists, that's how it was described to me, working from the mountains, <laughs> being there, being revolutionary. And the way they were being revolutionary was that uh, they would gather in this mountain place which is like a retreat center, really. Um, and really wealthy people would spend the day with people from the lowest parts of society, meaning in a hierarchical structure that we, that they have. It's a very strong class structure in Indonesia, but they've spent the day studying together, chanting together, doing stuff together. Uh, and then at the end of the day, all clean up together and sleep together on the floor of that place. So. There was this story coming out of this mountain retreat that there was some mini revolution going on in the mountains. And it turned out that the person who owned that place was what I would call an uncle of mine, meaning not that he was literally an uncle, but he was a member of my family close network. And so he said, come along and join in and we'll teach, I'll show you what we're doing. But I went entirely with this journalist hat on. And from the place in the mountains, they would send posses of Buddhists out into villages, local villages, um, and just spend time with the local villagers. And one that in particular that I remember was this place called Talawa. This was my first introduction to what these Buddhists were doing there. So we arrived there. Somehow the, the chief had heard about the chanting that we do, this, you know, that we practice, and they were already chanting together. Um, but my experience is somebody who's just witnessing. Uh, and I didn't have, I couldn't speak Indonesian, right? So I was just listening to them coming together, chanting, and then my uncle would give a lecture. And in the lecture, all I heard was this Indonesian, very, very, you know, very beautifully spoken, but punctured with this word, ada. And he, he would speak and that's hear ada, ada. And I, I never, I, I really wanted to know what that meant because every time he said it, I could see people nodding like, yes. So, so he was saying something that they were agreeing with. 
and understood later on that this word Adam means nothing more than there is, right? There is. I love that. And you've used Adar through the book. Whenever there's something very deep that you've put into the book, it has Adar. I love that. Yeah, that's right. So just to explain a bit further, he, he, what I found out later was he was saying something like, you think you have no power. You do. You think there are no resources here. There are. You think there is no future for you. There is. And what it was was a sort of um, he's calling to the front of your mind this kind of realization that the story that the it, the story of your powerlessness is a story, and that if you look at it more deeply, you'll see there's always something you can do because the resources are there. And what happened in Talawa is that we left, we enjoyed this, you know, coming together, this conversation. People gave stood up and and talked about their lives and then we left and then six months later we came back to the same place and it was just a remarkable transformation people had there was a road they built a road already that people had started to plant vegetables in their garden and they were already beginning to sprout that young people who had been trapped in the house with their parents unable to leave had built another house in the same village and living next door, still within the care and circle, but not now able to live a private life with their husband. I mean, the stuff that could happen in a very short space of time was happening before my eyes. And then we come back, another lecture, more chanting. But this time, everybody was keen to, to stand up and to share their experience of what had happened to them. And it was all about just realizing that they could do this that it was possible to do that, that if they worked together, when they worked together, they could plan something and then this happened. And it was literally a revelation kind of experience. And it, it, that, that very basic thing was the thing that I've taken with me throughout this 30 years, which is, I guess one might call it a kind of faith in life itself, that even when you think it's not, there's nothing possible there is a possibility there. And it's just that very basic thing that I've carried through. Which right now, right now, the whole world needs to know that and feel that. Because between the results of COVID, the fear, climate change, the fires, I mean, almost every country, the poverty, every country in the world has got some kind of deep trauma going on. And if there was ever a need to say to people, you can make this change. You do have this power. It, it is now. So I guess one way is that we become Buddhist teachers and go around doing that in rows, but that's neither your way or my way. And yet we keep the the basic Buddhist philosophy in everything we do. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, I, I absolutely agree with that, Lynn. And you and I had our changing relationship with the organization of Buddhists, you know, which has an organizational trajectory, like like a historic one, it starts like this and then it becomes something else and then it becomes something else. It takes particularly as it's Japanese and they have a very specific way of doing things, which is very different to ours, really. Well, that's, that's true. And, and in each country, it's taken a slightly different shape. And I'll come back to that, but that's a kind of fractal reality. But what the thing that I want to, to carry in this book is that it's not Buddhism itself that is the message. 
Buddhism tells the message of life itself. The Buddha himself said, Buddhism is a raft, you know, it's a vehicle to get you from one side to another side. And if you like, you could say one side of is, is, is the beginning of life and the other side is the end of life. And Buddhism is like a vehicle to take you through that, but it's not life itself. Life itself is the thing that is always replenishing itself, always regenerative. It is in fact eternal. You may go through you may experience death, but life always springs up again. So it's, that is the message that the Buddha taught about life. He didn't teach about Buddhism. And your book is definitely not a Buddhist textbook, not at all. And that's what I love. Well, I love a lot of things about it, but one of the things I like and love is how you bring together the internal, the spiritual, the self-belief and self-beliefs. And then together with that is the practical aspects of what we can do in society, how we can create change, how we do this wonderful new society that Buckminster Fuller talked about all those years ago and make it so attractive that we get this new beginning because we need it so desperately right now. Everywhere in the world, there is nowhere that doesn't need it. And in some countries, it is going to be easier than others to make these changes. I mean, certain countries which are so controlled, like China, for example, it will be a lot harder, I suspect. But somewhere like the UK, where we're both based and where you have co-founded the Alternative UK, we have the opportunity, I, I think, I believe, to create these local collaborations. But again, before we get to that, let's go back to your journey. So you, you found Buddhism. You saw that even though you were looking at it as a journalist, you also sell personally that it was something that you could live with, put in your heart, and will take you on this boat across the sea of life. And you came back to the UK, of course, and you started working with the wonderful Richard Corson, passed away now, who was the leader of the, what was NSUK, Nishin Shoshu UK at that time, where I can't remember how many people we had practicing Buddhism in that those days. It was Seventies, eighties, nineties. If you remember Alice, the musical that we did together as an organisation pre-Alice, we were one thousand. Post-Alice, we were only three thousand. But we did we did triple over that period of Alice. So we used, you know, for for people listening, they won't have a clue what we're talking about. But and well, Alice, which is a very major major part of my life too was a show that we put on, which was a modern-day version of Alice in Wonderland, and we put it on as a Buddhist organization at the Hammersmith Odeon. I think that's what it's called, Pono, I think it is now, or one of them. And we had everybody in the organization, all of the thousand involved, whether they were making costumes, little baby rabbits like my children that were appearing on the stage, people were writing, people were singing. It was extraordinary. And the songs were amazing. The whole of Alice was a life-changer. And you and I... We're not on the stage. I don't think you were either. Well, you I certainly wasn't. We were, we were the PR committee with a few other good friends and we were inviting people to come and see what was going on. This is, uh, uh, Linda, you don't know that I was the writer of the script. No, I didn't. Yeah. I wrote Hannah. Did I did not know that. Yeah. Well, in fact, it's me and Eddie Camper do much. We, we wrote it together. I did. Oh, if I knew it, it's one of the many things that I no longer retain. Well, you did a brilliant job, that's all I can say, <laughs> because you brought that spirituality into a, a kind of pantomime show, which every 
age group loved. Oh, talk about that then. That was that's amazing. I have to say it was um you know, obviously it was Dick Corston's vision to use the power of the arts to really involve everyone in something that was basically joyful and joy giving, but still to tell a story. And Alice in Wonderland was the perfect vehicle for that because you know, she starts on the ground, she goes into the ground, she explores herself, and then she comes back out again. So there's a sort of transformation, heroic journey that she undertakes. We were able to use such such great songs for her. And, and, you know, Ian, you know, my husband at that time was one of the main songwriters, as was Phil Sawyer, you know, these were professional songwriters capable of writing, and Annie O'Dell, you know, capable of writing beautiful um lyrics and songs, it was exactly the thing that you're talking about. We created a magnet for our message. People wanted to come and see a, a good show. Like a, like a, it was sold out. I can't even remember how many nights. You might remember how many nights it was on in Hammersmith because we, you know, we did a, a certain amount of time and then we stopped and we did it again. And there was never a ticket to be had, never. That's right. It was, well, it was seven shows in total. Hammersmith Ogin was, at the time, three I can't remember, 3,000 people. 2,000. So, so we had a lot of people and a lot of public, a lot of newspapers wrote about it. And we had people from the UN coming and all sorts of important bodies, <laughs> um, all coming to see what on earth these crazy Buddhists were doing. And, and, and uh, it was wonderful. And another thing that was also under the time of Dick Corson, which you'll remember so well, was the Choose Life Peace exhibition we did, which was, I don't know, a few years later. That was showing all different installations, poetry, again, creative arts, to express how important it was to create a peaceful world. And I took Catherine Hamlet, the fashion designer, along to it. She got inspired. She did her big graphic T-shirt saying, choose life and lots of other things. And that became an enormous, enormous, really popular sort of young people's messaging way. And has come back again in the last couple of years because she's given it to the refugee movement. So again, we're seeing choose life, choose love in these big, bold graphics on big white T-shirts all over the country and at music festivals. And that also came from that period of time where we were young Buddhists and trying to get our message over to others because we felt that it was something they would benefit from without trying to go around and propagate the whole world, but. <laughs> and you were very caught cool to that time, I remember, because you could see something that would appeal to the really the widest possible society in the very core of the message. So this is exactly what politics can't do. Politics reduces things to survival level goals, whereas you were saying that you could draw energy from the whole society through having a very high aspirational message for the whole world and, it, and and delivering those messages which i still think is appropriate now in ways that people can really connect with and trust and feel comfortable with because if you look at the mass um mass world of consumers and society it, what are they influenced by well you talked a lot about the internet and social media of course but if you're looking at the 13 to 17 year olds today what are they influenced by tiktok that's it, really. Short little films on TikTok. I've got a friend whose 13 year old daughter has got quarter of a million followers who does little animations every week. And I mean, that, that, so it's like at that time, big t shirts and a great fun family show with lots of great music, which were written by rock musicians who were Buddhist um, and 
performed by professional dancers who were British and actors, um, was very much part of getting our message over. It would not be this way now, but it was right then. We, we were popularizing, and this is something that's really your gift that you can see what is already there. It's this adaptness of this. Some people think, or well, the political message is that we have to convince people to be better in some way. And what you're saying, what you're, you were showing and what we were doing is saying that people are that way. They just don't have a vehicle for it. Mm-hmm. There's not really enough for their hopes and dreams. That's proper. Funnily enough, I was actually doing PR for the Labour Party about that time. Interesting enough. And I got, I got shouted at by Peter Mandelson, totally shouted at, because I got involved with getting T-shirts done. And again, Catherine Hamlet and the cloth and body map. I got them all doing these t- teenage T-shirts, because in those days, teenagers and women were so unrelated to anything going on politically. I mean, this was, I guess, the 80s, early 80s. So they give us a job, give us, give us a job, but it would give us a job. And we did all the very designer T-shirts and my work with Red Wedge. And uh, there were other ways that I was talking to women journalists who had never been spoken to by the Labour Party before about things that women cared about. And that was with Neil Kinnock, who didn't get in. And uh, since then, I learned a lot about politics and realized that um, there's got to be so much more to change than could ever, ever be done now or ever by a few people sitting in a big old building up in Westminster. That is not what change is about, or leadership, in fact. And I think we've seen that very clearly in the last few couple of years, if, if not before. So... There's woke and there's waking up, and those are two different things. So everybody's using this phrase woke now, but when you've talked in your book about waking up, what do you mean by that? What's your point? Uh, I think they're related to each other, but they are two different expressions of something in, in a sort of different time frame. So what, what I try to explain, or what I'm claiming in my book, is that we've been in a revolution for about 20 years, and that's the revolution that the internet brought. And for those of us who actually lived through the introduction of the internet and how life changed, we can really uh, attest to the fact that it was a massive change. Before, we had very little access to information other than the information that came from above. So whoever was our boss or whoever was our leader, they would be in charge of what we were reading, really, and we would receive information that way. We'd read it through our newspapers, but we didn't have much choice. That's the only place we could read stuff. And or we could go to our libraries, but that's libraries were a different way into information and not for everyone and also not uh, up to date. So that changed. And also we had no real access to each other, right? To, to, to organize was a very laborious thing to do. People could do local organizing, but it was literally about knocking on doors and people wielding power over each other. Or you maybe you had trade unions, but they would be in your workplace under certain conditions, good sets of rules. Mobilizing was a very hard thing to do. Come the internet, all of that changed. Suddenly we, we had over a, over a period of about 10 years, slowly, incrementally, we all got access to information. Now, first of all, we didn't even know what we were asking. Information was something like, when's the next bus? Or where can I buy this? But slowly but surely, we started to realize we could ask a lot more questions and much more kept, became available on the internet. And people are, are, are basically educating themselves for the first time about why are we in the state we're in. 
Where does the power lie? Why can't I do this? Why is he able to do that? These sorts of questions start to be accessible to you. You can get answers in ways you never could before. Now, everybody is gradually waking up to the reality of the planet, for example, understanding that we are in a a multiple crises. I don't just mean the crisis of the environment, which is the biggest one, but also the crisis of mental health, the crisis of our powerlessness, our lack of agency. What do you mean by agency, lack of agency? Because you referred to agency all the way through the book, and that one word really kind of challenged me. Yeah, sure, sure. So agency means being able to make something happen by using the things that are there. So we can't make something happen because we only have a vote every five years. In some countries, it's four, but here it's five, actually. And then even when you go to vote, you've already being told it's either this or that. You vote for the left or you vote for the right. There's, there's nothing that actually expresses what you're trying to vote for. There isn't the option to vote for the thing you, I was trying to vote for. It doesn't exist. So that I totally lack agency to make a change in my society. So it means power. That's how I read it. And I... Agency is, is, is your power, really. Yeah, personal power. Your ability to make something happen. So just to say... As all of this waking up is going, the other thing that people rarely acknowledge is that not only is it access to information, not only is it mobilizing, but everybody is able to see themselves now in the public space. So when you post something on Facebook or on Twitter or Instagram, suddenly you're out there. That's you, Lynn, in the public space, making a, a comment and having some limited amount of influence over the situation. And that's what Joseph Nye in this hard power, soft power paradigm calls the era of the non-state actor. So we've moved into the era of the non-state actor. So all of us are non-state actors except as of us who are the state. And this is now the, the era we're living in. Commons, the commons, is the rest of us. We'll come to the commons. But within that gradual waking up of everyone, I would say that the people who have been most disadvantaged by the system have had the steepest waking up and it's caused a lot of anger and grief. So people who understand that, that their disadvantage is not because they don't work hard enough. It's not because they're not good enough. It's not about merit. It's the way the system has actively disadvantaged them. And as you are slowly waking up to that because people are sharing information, making videos, showing you the evidence, writing the blogs. This wokeness is this, this sharp end of people waking up to, to something that is really completely unacceptable. So Black Lives Matter describe themselves as woke because they systematically, if you like, as a community woken up to the, obviously, it's something that we could not grasp anymore, that it was possible that not only that they were enslaved, that's something that we kind of knew, but that even well after slavery was abolished, that there was a system of disadvantaging black people all over the world, putting them in prison for crimes that no one else would go into prison for, everything around the scandal of Jim Crow. It's like this, they woke up to it. And we woke up. I, I, I have a very close friend 
who I've worked for many years, who is of um, Caribbean descent. And I said to her, you know, Nora, I've never seen color. I've never seen color. And she said, you might not have, but I do. And I have. And it really made me take a step back with huge apologies because it's anyway, they, th- th- that is something. And thank goodness we are waking up and we're waking up with the Me Too movement. And XR has done a lot of this. And you talk in the book a lot. Uh, you're quoting as an e- example, the festivals themselves, Burning Man, you talk about a lot. And then you talk about certain cities or towns who are a little bit more woken up. You, call, you talk about Froome, uh, which is near where I live, of course, which has had huge changes that have taken place and flat-packed democ- flat democracy that has been created from Froome and, and Totnes, where they had the transition town movement. And I, and I've seen this coming too. It's quite clear. There are these small, what you call fractal, really, I suppose, different initi- initiatives that are coming together from whether it be spiritual organizations like the Buddhist, like the Brahma Kumaris, who I'm also close with, like Burning Man. I mean, there's this different energy and it's, we're being woken up. Talk a little bit about how you see that and what Burning Man's about. Because although we know what it is, some people listening don't. I mean, you, you, in a way, you, you, you've, you've done a very quick um, jump from the waking upness to what is possible. And I've got to try and fill in some of the gaps in between because it isn't a simple, I mean, just if it was simply a growing movement of wokeness, then we would quickly connect up with each other. But it's a very uneven movement uh, at different levels. And the question is, how do we contain it in ways that it becomes useful? So people might remember at the beginning of this revolution, as I said, described it, things like Arab Spring, the Arab Spring where in Egypt or in Tunisia, different parts of the Middle East were overthrowing leaders because they were able to mobilize for the first time. But they also remember that it didn't last, that the riot, it rose and then it fell again. And the reason for that was, is that there's no infrastructure ready to capture that new energy to make it useful. They were not organized to use the new energy that's being released through this waking up. And the movements are easily crushed by the people who are better organized, who are the old system. Who have the bigger weapons, sadly. So. They have the bigger weapons, but also they simply, they've got the higher they have all- they've got the leadership, you know, yeah. they're organized. We're not organized. So let's take you a look at the terrible, yeah, absolutely. I'm just thinking even what you see right now in Burma or what you see in Belarus, all these countries which is just so deplorable what's going on. So the rising up of its own accord is not enough. Occupy for me was the sort of most noticeable because although the people that Occupy had a great analysis, you know, that came, it came out of Adbusters, which is an incredible magazine movement. I love Adbusters. Yeah. So this is incredible analysis of the situation that really had an ambition, you know, to crack Wall Street, you know, to so occupy Wall Street. I didn't know it came out of Adbusters. How interesting, because I've been a fan of Adbusters, which is a Canadian magazine that does what it says on the tin and, and just pierces all this advertising commercial rubbish that we're sold. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, we're dropping all sorts of words and names, but it's definitely worth anybody checking. Adbusters used to be the magazine I could spend time with because it had the whole analysis. I remember when I announced and told the whole advertising industry about Adbusters, the English one, I was speaking at a big marketing conference and I said, and of course, 
This was probably 20, 30 years ago. I said, of course, you all know about ad busters. They'll come and get you if you keep telling all those lies, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it took a while. <laughs> you know, exactly. So that's another story in itself. Yes, another book. You know, it was heartbreaking to see so much analysis and insight and core behavior being acted out in Occupy, for example. So the way they occupied the street, the values they used, the way they they heard each other, it was a beautiful fractal of a pattern of relationships that could lead to something else, but there was nothing else. There was nothing to give this energy to that could then make a difference. So what I'm saying is that after that initial period of that of the revolution, we went into a period of lossness or, or apparent lossness. But in fact, things were springing up everywhere. You know, people taking that knowledge of and the ability to organize and the new information and analysis, they were starting things up everywhere. And creativity, I'd say as well. Creativity, absolutely, the heart of it. And so transition towns sprung up in this era. In this era. Well, in fact, 15 years ago, more, more or less now. Um, and eco-villages and all sorts of new place-based initiatives of people coming together to do things and overcome their differences uh, and try to work together in a, what we call a systemic way. That has been happening uh, in different pockets all over the place, right? And But I, I barely knew about that when I started the alternative. I knew that it existed, but I didn't. I haven't spent a lot of time really studying it. And the Burning Man example was how a lot of this things of this thinking was breaking out in festivals of people coming together. So people would come together from across nations to meet in the Nevada desert and create works of art together that somehow were like churches. They would capture the spirit of the age and the sort of incredible aspiration of people. And then before they left, they would break these works of arts down. So it wasn't a capitalist thing. They wouldn't sell this work of art. They would break it down again and leave the desert as they found it. Right. So that was an ecological statement, which is a little bit like traditional Buddhist monks when they make those beautiful mandalas in sand and colored sand, these works of art. And they spend weeks and weeks on them, and then they will tip it into the river or into the sea. It's it's the sacred giveaway, isn't it? Yes, because what occurred in their lives as they were doing that was 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 the point. The work of art was not the point. The thing you then sell to someone else and make a market out of. The point was the experience of being together doing that thing, and what they conjured up in their heads as they were doing it. And that, for me, was also what Burning Man was about. Festivals. Have become in many ways festivals have become the place where people bring their hopes and their their yearning for something more than what they're experiencing in their daily life. I'm not necessarily talking about the music festivals like Reading or no, but Glastonbury has that element. I mean, Glastonbury completely has it. I, I took part in one the other day called the Realization Festival, which was hosted by. Perspectiva at the house of the grounds of um, the Earl of Shaftesbury. <laughs> so, I visited there the other day. That's really near me, you know. Really? Okay. So you'll know that the Earl of Shaftesbury is trying to somehow gift his land to 
this movement. He has quite decided how exactly he's going to do it, but this Realization Festival is trying to hold the discussion around that, or at least the thinking around that. Because he's a young, new Earl of Shaftesbury that wasn't going to be the Earl of Shaftesbury, but people in his family passed away prematurely, and I gather he's just sort of come... Quite interesting. There's an incredible story there. His ancestors, and he'd like to carry on that tradition, but it's obviously a very interesting part of our history. You know, what do people do with land? Well, they gift it. The land should belong to the people that look after it um, in every way. It's also stuff I've written about before. That's how I see the future. So anyway, so what we're looking at, just to get back to your fantastic book, there's so many things we could be talking about, is taking the changes that have come in over the last 20 years, whether they be from festivals, whether they be from movements like Transition Town, like XR, like, like all the other, like Black Lives Matter, Me Too, there are changes going on right now in society, which if we bring together in some way, or as you, you talk about, not a platform, not a movement, but a container, if we bring this container together where you call the fractal different aspects of society who are seeing this new way of doing things can collaborate, we can create something which is tangible, which doesn't mean that we have all this publicity and everybody gets excited and goes dancing in the park and then it goes because there's nothing left there to catch. That this old-style paradigm of linear management, whether it be management from Westminster, management from media, management from the banks, has got to go. Even though there are changes going on there, we're being moved very clearly towards a cashless society. Banks want to control everything digitally, which means we can't spend money the way we like because we can be controlled, which is very frightening. There are lots of things going on. But equally, it is rumbling in a way, which I've seen, I guess, since the 60s, in a very healthy way. So we talked a little bit earlier about community money. You were mentioning one of the people that you feature in the book. Mike Dell. Let me set Mike up properly because, yes. first of all, let's allow just a moment of critique for the old system because the reason that I feel we're talking, we, we've given our lives to this, right? Um, but it's something that needs to surface now quite fast. And the old system is not capable, in my mind, of carrying this evolution of society, right? So the reason, if we, if we look at the political system, it was designed by elites and, and by male elites, you know, in a particular way, so that we have a party political entity which is self-destructive. What, what I mean by that is because it's mostly a two-party system, um, and anywhere where it's first past the post, like it is with us, it ends up with a two-party system in which half the country is invested in the failure of the other half. Yes. Ludicrous. It's never for the good of the people, ever. No, it's the survival of the idea of uh, what progress is and what growth is, so that it's committed to this growth paradigm. That's the economy that it's still invested in. and. If the system is oppositional. I remember Peter McFadden from Peru, who just shared a story that he was telling me that's how frustrating it was that whatever one party did, the other party would just oppose. Mm. You know, you could have a really good idea for your community, but the other party would simply oppose it because it's the other party. Right. And so it was built to implode. And if you ask, we have to ask ourselves, 
why have we not been able to get ourselves out of the mess we're in? I would put it down to a political system that cannot use the energy that is available to it. It just implodes all the time. Yes, and our political system is not even that different from many others. And they all go back hundreds of years to a very different world. And the systems are kept in place because they benefit the few. The corruption in any country, if you look at the corruption here with the whole COVID, the people that were getting these contracts for millions of pounds, the cronyism. I mean, it's a few people making a lot of money out of a system which should have been destroyed a long time ago and is completely obsolete. Completely I wouldn't obsolete. even go as far as to say corruption, Lynn. I think the corruption is present, but it's mostly the highest earning people have got so used to their comfort zone that they will just hold on to it. They don't want to give it away. Mm. They don't want to actually invest in a system that would distribute wealth better because they'd have to lose something in the process. Of course. I tell, that's all part of it. I mean, I do think there's corruption, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a loaded word and it can mean lots of different things. And I think at the end of the day, I, I've worked a fair bit in Westminster, as I know you have done. And I would see people that would come into the system of politics, central politics, really with the best intentions and fantastic vision. And it wouldn't take long before that got destroyed. Not for everybody. I mean, I did a podcast with the wonderful Stella Creasy the other day, who I'm huge amount of admiration and respect for. And there are other, mostly women, of course, the extraordinary Joe Cox. That was just tragic. Um, so there are good people in politics, mostly women, but there's the power is still in the hands of the few who are the old boys club. I don't want anybody who's listening to think that I'm totally dismissing the current system because I do know so many good people. I was part of a think tank called Compass. There are so many good people reforming the system and working on that and that to be there are and projects right there it's just that it's not going fast enough and i'm not even sure it's possible that's my view i left compass because i lost faith in that being possible and i felt we had to start the new system that makes the old one obsolete but I, what we're doing is not trying to overthrow the system but it is very distinctly, and this is the, perhaps the most radical part of my book, trying to create a dual system. Well, that goes back to the Buckminster Fuller quote. It's not trying to destroy the system exactly that. It's trying to create something better. And as you say, a dual system. Dual system. Because you can't stop something like that over. Yeah, yeah. And the dual system, let's talk about that. So the dual system is where we will bring in CAN and what your vision is, how you think we can create this change. And are we able to do it now? Is the, you, you refer to the tipping point in the book. Is it now time for the tipping point where we can create this new system? Big question. Well, I would say yes, obviously, because I'm investing in that. And what I, when I say investing, I mean I've taken my attention away from the old system and I'm giving it to the new system. And for me, that shift of attention is the most important investment that you can make. Once you start to really invest in the new system, you begin to believe in it because you see how much there is that you never really understood was there before. So when we started doing the alternative four and a half years ago, triggered, I would say, by the death of Joe Cox, the one most important thing we started to do was to publish a daily alternative. So every day we're saying, the fact is only 2% of people are members of political parties. Think about it. 2% of people are actually signed up members of political parties. 98% are 
or spending their time and money doing something else, right? What are they doing? And in that 98%, we saw so much rich innovation happening that we committed to publishing that something every day. We've done that for four and a half years now. And if you were to, and I've said this to people, I'm a psychotherapist and I've said to people who are depressed, stop reading the old stuff and just read this for a couple of months and then see how you feel about life in general, the bigger picture. What is this all for or where are we going? Start to invest your energy and your attention in what's happening and you'll see there is so much happening. But it won't be a tipping point. People keep giving their energy away to the old system. And this is for the people closest around me. On a daily basis, I still see them enthralled to the old system, talking about the failure of this and, oh God, that decision, what a ridiculous this. And that all their energy is given to, to trying to battle with something that is absolutely solid and won't change for a while. Imagine if you took that energy and just gave it to discovering, experimenting, playing in the new system. And that's what I feel is the tipping point. I think it's possible. I, th- I can see there's enough latent infrastructure now, what I call fractals, so models of things that are beginning to emerge that can show you how if a town or a city or a region constitutes itself as what I call a community agency network. So that means actually creating something in that place. So not just having lots of things going on, but saying, let's call it something, let's co-own it. It's like a cooperative, but it's in a way much more, it's like the evolution of cooperatives, let's put it that way, that is now globally connected with others across the world, sharing, already sharing values, but sharing practice, methods, new forms of energy or food or new kinds of meeting spaces. I mean, all the stuff that we think of doing contained in something that is actually constituted and you can become a member of that thing, that is the building block for the parallel system. I agree completely. So where do women go in all this because you've talked a lot about the women in the book and the feminization and feminism and women carrying on behaving like men even when they get equal roles isn't the answer either so where's where do women stand i mean for me the the whole the ada thing applies more to women than to anything almost because when we're thinking about how can we make what kind of organization or what kind of container can we design in this community that would really bring the diverse voices in and start to create economy and care systems and energy systems. How are we going to do that? The truth is women have been doing this always, but they don't get paid for it. They don't get acknowledged and therefore it can't have traction. So the very thing you think you need to invent is already there. So a great example of this was when, David Cameron invented the big society. We'll give it it a name. But what did he do with all of that money? He raided the the dormant accounts of people across the nation. He had lots of money to play with. He didn't give it 
to the people who were holding the communities together, who'd been doing it for nothing for decades and were stretched beyond their limit. If, with a little bit of money, these things could all risen to the surface and become real engines and con- containers of energy for that place. No, he gave it to his own groups of young uh, social entrepreneurs, mostly young guys, and said, design it for us. And that's when I talk about corruption, and that's what I'm talking about. I also think it's ignorance. Um, well, it's ignorance. It's completely him. And I mean, George Osborne was the Chancellor of Exchequer. He leaves the government and he goes and be is a consultant to BlackRock, who are one of the darkest financial companies in the world. And that he was the man making decisions about our taxes and what they should be spent on. And BlackRock, who just the worst. I mean, it is very concerning, but we can either live in fear and depression or we come out of that using our strong spiritual beliefs, whatever they are, or our practices and our community to come together in what you're calling and which we should all belong to, the CANS. The got two names for it. It's Community Action Network and Community Agency. Funnily enough, Delicia Seller's story is that when we started to do the work with the alternative, we thought, what needs to appear? And we were working in Plymouth. So interestingly, not Totnes. We thought about Totnes, but we also thought that Totnes already has transition towns, but also it has a certain, what's the right word for it? It's already quite established in terms of its brand. And, it's, and it isn't actually that diverse. And it doesn't have that much working classness in it. No, and it's also quite a small town. As opposed to Plymouth as a city. There's yeah. that. It was the mayor, the mayor of Buckfastly, you know, um, who told us, go to Plymouth. Don't, don't, don't stay in there. They're saying Totless. He said, there's a lot more diversity there. There's a lot more energy of, of a different kind. And, you know, people are doing very new things. So we started working in Plymouth and seeing, in fact, that there was this organization called the Real Ideas Organization who were doing really interesting work through using the arts in many ways, but creating centers for community activity and generating new social enterprise, but being very community-minded, thinking about how can we bring this whole city to life. That's another story. But it was there that we started to do our work, which we called collaboratories, which would give rise to our idea of a CAN, which we called a Citizens Action Network, which is how all of these things come together within a container that everyone can belong to, almost like a club. And then if you were constituted in some way, you would attract people from much further away or people who didn't even care about politics or anything. They just want to be part of this thing because they would get advantage by being part of it and be part of a, a new story about us, which people want to be part of. So we saw this as a design-led thing that we were imagining, but as we were doing that, we saw that it was already happening. You know, that, it's that penny-dropping moment when you realize the thing you're trying to make happen already exists organically because it's what people do. And, it's mostly, and the reason we couldn't see it well enough is because it's mostly led by women. That women everywhere have been creating these community networks, bringing outside people in, including the excluded, or I don't even like that word included, making it about everyone in that community, not just small groups of people. And the mindset, the whole new system mindset, you could actually find it in a social worker as much as you could find it in a social entrepreneur, that women have this natural networked whole community, whole person way of thinking, you know, that comes naturally to a mother trying to bring up a child. 
but I'm not saying it's only mothers. It's, it's something that women have. I agree. You know, we don't know about it. We don't know about it because it's not, it's not what the system reports to us. The, the media doesn't talk about the women's work. It talks about the men's work. Well, all the semantics, all the language that we've grown up with is, is all coming from a male perspective, which is why so many young women, and I, I, as you know, I've started working with young teenagers, have such self-esteem issues, which have not been helped by the last couple of years because they haven't been out of their houses. And the masks I was going to bring in before, when you want people to wake up, the whole concept of a mask, whether you believe it's good for you or not good for you, what can be more disengaging than everybody walking around with their faces covered up, where you can't see people smile, where you can't see what they're really saying? I mean, we've had everything thrown at us, but we are still continuing on, of course. And the youth um, is so important because they are the future at the end of the day. It's really young people. So you, I'm sure, are bringing them into the work you're doing. I mean, uh, to me personally, the, because I've got a son exactly that age, um, for me personally, that is my driving force. So everything that we've been working on learning for the past 30 years is, is knowledge of how the system is. But the young people being born today, they're being born into something quite different. They're, they're being born into a world which is already self-conscious and already understands that it's in trouble. Whereas we, we were working in a world that was not awake most of the time and everything we were doing was idealistic and seen as somehow utopian. Whereas for them, we've got the information that will help them to build something in the face of a real crisis that already exists. So their way of working will be very different from ours. And, and my, my um, commitment is to get behind them. So empower them with the knowledge we have. And I, I'm finding that in the places where groups of young people are already committed to change, they are very grateful for support from their, from the elders. So definitely, for sure. They want to have that, but they also want to let us know that they don't see it the way we see it because well, they were born as inter, internet natives. They're digital natives. They think things are possible where we've thought they're not possible. And they've seen themselves get over race divides and class divides. I'm not seeing all of them, but the ones that I'm meeting in the field don't have the same hang-ups that we have been trying to get over. They're born into a world where that's conscious, self-conscious. They know that it's a problem. They know they can overcome it. Whereas for us, it was lurking in the shadows. Still, I don't know. That some of the ones I, some of the girls I'm working with, the teenagers, they don't know they can they can challenge it and get over it, and they need that support. There's a huge amount of lacking in self confidence, and it's heartbreaking. But you know, that's I think our roles. We are the wisdom keepers, and that is our role now: is to support youth and to hold out our hands to them and help them cross the, the sea that is life, or help them to get into the boat at least. So. Um, money. Let's talk about money before we finish, because we were talking before and we know how hard it is when you're creating change and you're doing some initiatives which are groundbreaking. It doesn't always mean that the finance is there available to, you talked about David Cameron, for example, the money didn't go into helping people who were really making a difference. It went into a few sons of friends and, well, without going into too much, 
what that was about. But now, where are we now? And not only that, but not getting money into the areas that would help. Money itself is changing. We know it is. We know that the banks are going to digitalize, that we know that it is going to be very, very, very different. What is currency? What is money? We mentioned it, touched on it before. Is it going to be about community, barter? I mean, I've written and talked about barter forever because, again, it's the women in society. And in African villages where I've worked and all over post-war zones that I've put a bit of time and work and conversation into, it is the women because they want to feed the children that will make sure that they will exchange something they have a value with somebody else who's got something else which is a, something else which is a value to them. So it's sort of literally six eggs for a piece of ham. It's that kind of barter in community. And there has been a lot of community money developed with the net system and others over the years, which have started, got to a certain point, and then seem to have dissolved again. I think we're going to have no choice in bringing those back. I think growing our own vegetables, getting young people used to the land, understanding the importance of well-being and nutrition, at the same time having access to the um, the real tools that are going to help them, as well as the digital tools. We're living in a world where it's almost going back hundreds of years to a kind of more of a rural existence combined with the most sophisticated digital tools and machinery we could ever imagine, AI and bots and goodness what else. And we've got these two things, this dichotomy really, of let's grow our own vegetables, but let's keep our internet going, um, which <laughs> connects us with the whole world. Very, very strange in every way. I, I certainly never would have, when we were doing Alice 30 years ago, and we look forward to now, could we ever have even imagined the world as it is now? I agree with you. And there's, there's something uh, amazing about that. Um, some people are dismayed by it because they find it that they can't recognize the world. In it. But personally, I'm excited about it. And if you're talking about money, I would say we're in a very, very transitionary phase, exactly as you described it. There are so many initiatives now going on that are challenging the old idea of money. So I think at some point, obviously, it's a huge spectrum. So one end of the spectrum, People are trying to change the markets and they're trying to get the money from philanthropists or they're trying to get the money from the lottery. They're trying to persuade the council to spend the money. There's that end of it. And I think all of that is laudable and good luck to that. To that. But it's still part of the old money system of money is debt. You know, that's really what it is. That's what we're trading. We're not trading anything real. As you said, the gold was used up a long time ago, but we're trading debt and we and, and we're slowly waking up to that. That's what it is. It's like being willing to be part of that story still, because what else actually can you buy food with? At the other end of, of the spectrum of new things arising is also what you described as new kinds of currency, new forms of energy exchange. So if people think about money as energy, it's the thing that keeps things going, right? It's the thing that we exchange uh, to make stuff happen or not happen, that could be done without a coif or without some without a bank needed. It's done between people in in relationships of trust. Somewhere in between that, there are these new forms of currency that are trying to bridge the gap between those two things. So you might say that there are blockchain cryptocurrencies that are trying to invent new forms of money, and some of them are really old system and some of them are quite new system. 
I, I would say there's a currency called Seeds, which only exists to fund regenerative projects like ours. And it's almost as if to say, if we can all agree that this has value, then we start to barter through using that currency. And people are being funded by seeds at the moment, for example. But it's a slow-growing system. And then there's this, one of my favorite examples is something called CounterCoin, which is as close to bridging the system as I think you can get. So CounterCoin is something that that, that was invented by Mike Riddell in Stoke-on-Trent, right? And what he's been trying to do is to generate measurement of how people create value, right? So if there's a group of people working together doing good stuff for nothing, he asks them to clock their hours so that everybody can see how many hours are being spent and how much value is being generated because that is measurable. And he, what he likes to do is pays them in something called countercoin. So you get, you get paid in countercoin for the hours that you work. What does countercoin buy you, right? The other part of the equation is that they go to the businesses in the area and get all of the excess that the business is not using in some way that is time-limited. Right, So it's either food that's gone off or it's a cinema ticket that once the film has been shown, that, that was, you can't use it again. And he's asking them to contribute their excess to the bank of CountCoin. So if you're paid with a coin, you can get something in return. And this is particularly good for young people. So young people are getting, in exchange for working in the community one way or another, they're getting free cinema tickets, free bus rides food, stuff they want that is not going to be used in any other way. So I it's very it. ingenious. It's, you know, it's the, very ingenious and it would work brilliantly in Somerset too when I'm working with these young people. It's a little bit clunky, but if you're committed, if, if, you know, if it just gives people this liberation feel of we can create our own economy. Mm. And that's at the heart of the Cannes movement, the idea that an economy can be generated from people coming together and making decisions about stuff. Now, our, our cans, by the way, don't just exist in the UK. We're connecting through the alternative to cans in Africa, in India, in Mexico, and in Portugal, right? So they're distributed around the world, and we didn't make them happen. They literally appeared on our horizon and like, walked into our bi-weekly co-creators cans meeting and said, this is us, here we are. We've had several sessions with the thing that calls itself the South Africa CANS movement. We had nothing to do with that. It just presented itself to us. And that's what I call fractal emergence. When I say in the fractal age, I'm, I'm saying that it's a bit like the 100th monkey syndrome. Then you, if you're doing something on your own here, well, then you discover it's also happening over there. And actually, it's also happening over there because why? Because this evolution is much broader than we realize. It's about human beings going to their next level of potential. And it's just a joy to see that it's happening in Africa as well as happening, you know, in Stoke-on-Trent. So from Africa, we've learned that it's very real to bring food into the equation. Right. So at Cannes movement during COVID, they were, so it's a variety of cans. Some of them are collected to fab labs 
some of them are just rural towns with nothing at all. And at the beginning of the COVID movement, they were sharing their results. So that was a beautiful thing. Halfway through COVID, they couldn't do that anymore. Literally, they ran out of resources. And so the really far-flung ones started to grow their own food. Now, some of us think, of course, that's obvious. Why not grow your own food? But others would say, don't be ridiculous. That's not the answer to poverty. We can't grow our own food to the extent that we can get out of this. But actually, here they are in these cans doing exactly that. And now there's something else to put into the equation of what are we sharing, what are we exchanging. They're showing us that it's not just, you know, something so crude as an, it's, it's a real thing and that, that we could also be doing. And in fact, is also happening in Totnes, is also happening in Plymouth, that people are growing food locally. It, can- it, they really are. And of course, the incredible edibles movement has started up in. I think Tom I mean, it's, it's, every, it's everywhere. And I too was very inspired by African women when I was working there and before when I met them years ago when we had the women's conference in China. And, uh, they told their stories of how they would go sow their seeds together, grow their vegetables together, take what is needed for the community, take the surplus to the local market, sell off the surplus, and with that, then finance the other young women with seeds for them to join. I mean, that that really, for me, was my inspiration for seed and what it's all about. And we are moving to that. And it's, it's just such an exciting time. And as long as those like yourself, like your partner, Pat, like like me, like the people we know and we really value keep that energy and that vision because as we know without the vision we won't be able to make anything happen we have to keep the vision there and the vision is we come together in communities it is not linear it is a circular system it is organic it is holistic and it is on every level of life and it is the youth and the old people and the ones in between and all of us coming together in a very beautiful harmonious way and i truly truly believe we can now, before I ask you how people can get hold of you, be part of what you're doing, and, and I know there will be lots that do, I want to read one last thing out of your book. At the end of the book, which I love, well, at the end of the book, other than the pages and pages of copious research that you've done, I mean, you've really put everything into this book, and it's such a wonderful book. You've done Afterworlds, and what you did was you took a look at what the world would be look, would look like now to those in the future. So I'm going to... I guess that you read all, you wrote all these yourself. And I'm just going to read this one. So looking in sort of 20 years hence and looking back to the times that are now, is it, would, would you say 20 years is realistic? Yeah. So this is what you wrote. Remember when big corporations and institutions actually were allowed to brainwash us willy nilly. Like just use their tech to addict us, to turn us into slaves at their command. Wow, the things they got us to do totally against our own interest. I guess it was a godsend that people fell off their Wi-Fi as things got worse and they had to turn to each other to find out what was going on and what to do next. Thank fuck for the women who had all their neighborhood networks and clever ways of getting people to talk to each other. Beats me why we didn't listen to them before. They are like the ultimate software. All that time, women were the technology we were looking for. I love that. Just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So for people who would like to get involved with the Alternative UK and your Alternative Daily Conversations and your all the things you're doing, what's the best way for them to get hold of you? Well, literally, you can sign up on the website, 
you know, www.thealternative.org.uk, you'll see right straight away, we invite you to sign up to the Daily Alternative, start to get used to the stuff that we're doing. But on the website, there's information about how to start a can or what are the five entry points really into a new political system. It's all there. We are still a very basic organization, if you like, but there's a huge, we're pointing at a huge system. Ultimately, it comes back to this thing of Ada. It's, we are pointing at, we're not, in, we're not inventing. We're saying it's already there. So if we wake up to that and start to invest in it by being part of it ourselves, you have to immerse yourself in that system. Then you, you know, then your belief in it will grow because it's there. Beautiful. And the book is also probably available from your website as well as online, I guess. The links to it are there. Yes, absolutely. I'd go to Central Books is really placed quite. You can get it on Amazon, but I'd like to just warn the readers that there's a black and white version there that is really not as good as the colored version. It's a very different experience. There's wonderful images and drawings all the way through it. I love the book. I congratulate you very, very deeply from my heart to getting this book written. I know it's going to influence thousands, thousands, thousands of people, and it will take this vision of this new future that we see and that we learnt at the very beginning of our spiritual practice in Buddhism, that Adan, as you say, we can do it. So thank you and just so much. What a, I mean, we could go on for hours. There's so much here, so much here. But I think we've covered certain things that I hope those who watch this podcast will or listen to it either uh, will follow up and look up more for themselves because there's so much here. Thank you so much and much love and goodbye. And to you. For our seed exercise for this podcast, I'd like to refer back to one of the clearest aspects of the current world that Indra and I discussed, which is that many of the solutions to the multiple crises today environmental, social and psychosocial are already available. And as Indra explains, without visibility and attention, they're unlikely to get any traction. So today I would like to suggest that you visit her website www.thealternative.org.uk and check out the action themes there. Perhaps you can start your own Citizens Action Network, CAN as Indra calls it, or share your practice and initiatives with The Daily Alternative. Whatever you choose, there are plenty of things to get you started in building new models that will serve us all better and bring us together in community. Thank you so much for listening and taking part. As I mentioned earlier, this is the last in the current series of Frankly Speaking with Lynn Franks and Friends, but we will be back in the autumn with some very exciting conversations. So do join us then. If you like what you've heard and want to learn more practical methods to help you plant the seeds in your own empowerment journey, then please subscribe to this podcast, rate it and review. Also, do make sure to join our Seed Network if you haven't already and join the thousands of like-minded women where you can make friends, promote your business and share your stories. Visit seednetwork.com to find out more And let us know if you'd like to be on our mailing list for our newsletter and all the information of our interesting and progressive workshops, retreats and events we have coming up later this year. Until then, see you next time.